Welcome to episode 23 of Redboard Rewind. My name is Spencer Luganbuehl, and today my special guest is Gulfstream's very own Acacia Courtney. We talk about races from this past Saturday's mandatory payout day at Gulfstream Park. Some angles that we talk about are why as a handicapper you need to rewatch races, and how looking past the last race can be profitable when handicapping. This is Redboard Rewind. It's the same old And now I'd like to welcome in my special guest, Acacia Courtney. Acacia, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Really excited to have you on today. So what we were looking for as a quick, easy question was what kind of your process is when it comes to handicapping the horses? Uh, So I'm a very visual person. So I probably put a bit more stock into that maybe than some others. And I also have the benefit of being at the track every day and following a particular circuit and following Gulfstream Park regularly or if I'm um, up in Saratoga, New York, something like that, then I have the the benefit of being there every day. So um, oftentimes, particularly with maidens or maybe you know, higher level allowance races or things like that. One of the biggest things will be if I had any particular notes on that horse from the last time I've seen him or her, whether it's physical notes or trip notes, um, surface change, or maybe just racing experience, those kinds of things for me can really come in handy. And I feel like that's one of the things that really helps me to kind of spot some price horses in particular, because it's just things that I've seen. You know, maybe for instance, I wrote down a first-time starter that I thought might be better on turf and then next time out we see them try in the grass or something like that. So I always try to look back through my notes and see if there's anything that pertains to what we're seeing that horse do on that particular day. Um, so that's number one. And then um, second, I always go through I go through the entire card. I note down any class changes, any sort of surface changes, equipment changes, things like that. Those are kind of surface things. And then a big thing for me is watching replays. So again, if I I have trip notes on a horse, but watching, I always think it's important to go beyond just what the short comment says, and you can really kind of discover a lot of things from that and try to visualize how the race is going to play out from a pace standpoint. I think that's very important, particularly when handicapping Gulfstream. A lot of great stuff in there. So we'll start off with the first thing being visual. If you were going to talk to a beginner handicapper and just kind of set them off in the right direction, what were some tips when you first started that kind of had you uh, start, in the, start in a positive way? Yeah, I, I grew up around horses. So for me, the visual thing was probably one of the more natural um, aspects of it. But obviously, looking at race horses and coming from uh, showing and, and jumpers and dressage and things like that, you're looking for different physical things. So um, that certainly took some getting used to. There's different types of equipment used and everything. And I wouldn't recommend trying to dive into all of that for somebody that's new to racing because it can be just a bit overwhelming. And I know, you know, even some of my co-hosts, a horse 
that's brown looks like another horse that's brown. <laughs> so sometimes that can be a, a little bit difficult. But um, I would certainly say that I think for me, one thing that's relatively not easy to spot, but if you are interested in looking from a physical aspect, seeing a horse that just looks healthy, you can see a shiny coat, a good amount of weight, not too heavy. You'll see muscle definition in it one that just has good energy, looks bright in his eye. Those are things that, that even if you don't look at horses all the time, you can see a healthy horse is a happy horse. And those are ones that are, are going to perform well because they're going to have that base, um, that strong baseline there to start with them. So if you're relatively new, that's something that I would recommend. If you're just plain and simply new to handicapping and just looking on paper, um, as I mentioned in the start, I think trying to see how the pace may play out is a really good tool to use because visualizing how you think the race may happen can kind of help you to find some points in the horses you're looking at. Now, I know you also talked about race replays. I feel like every guest I have on this show, race replays is a big, big thing when it comes to their handicapping process. When you first started out, did it seem overwhelming or did you kind of learn to figure out the little niches in between all the different races and what to really narrow down your search? Oh, it was absolutely overwhelming. I think um, every sport has statistics and replays and the opportunity to look back at things and see why things happen the way that they did. But I think horse racing is a different sport in that there is a lot of information out there, but for some new people, it's just hard getting access to that and then learning how to read it. So for me, like I said, I, I knew horses, but I didn't really know anything about the sport. And my background was that I was starting at that point as a, as a teenager at the end of high school to work with X-race horses and adopting them out. And I just started just trying to learn about racing because I just felt really incompetent not knowing what these horses were doing or where they were coming from or really know kind of what people on the backside were talking about. So that was actually one of the best ways that I learned was that I watched races and was like, okay, why did this happen the way that it did? So it was definitely intimidating, but luckily I met some people along the way that really helped me out. When you are also talking about, you said going through the entire card and looking at class changes, I know a lot of people, they'll just start race one, horse one, and go race by race, but it seems like you comb over the whole card first to look for, you know, maybe a favorite might be, you know, a little vulnerable here, or super strong favorite to start off the pick six, etc., Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. I, I always do. Um, I actually do about three run throughs for the entire card before I start deeply handicapping. So I go through and like I said, I, I note class changes, I note surface changes, distance changes, and then I do the pedigree for each of the horses. So by the time I'm actually really handicapping, I'm actually pretty familiar at that point with some of the horses and I already have an idea in my mind like you said a favorite I may try to pick or a horse that I'm really intrigued by and I'm saying okay let's see if I can really make a case for this horse or not for me one of the hardest things when I first started out was I would take you know it would be a full work day for me eight hours to do a card just because I was so unfamiliar with so much stuff and I'd hear certain players would be like I did the card in half an hour and I'm like that can't seem to be physically <laughs> possible. So with you're doing three run-throughs, about how long does it take you to do a card? Ooh, well, let's see. I usually um, do work in between races while I'm at Gulfstream, so I don't know if I typically do a card in one sitting, mm-hmm. but it is, like I said, it's usually 
you know, spread over a little bit of time, but it takes me a couple hours. I'd say that's for sure. Obviously, a Saturday card in the championship meet with 14 races and eight stakes is going to take longer than um, than a Thursday in the summer. So it, it varies, of course. But um, but no, I think even now I'm still. I don't want to use the word slower, but I really I do take my time, and sometimes I'll I'll come back to a race just because. I know I don't like the favorite and then I just don't know who else to pick. And, you know, then I used to kind of start doing process of elimination. So it does still take me a lot of, not a lot of time, but it takes me a significant amount of time. But I don't think there's anything wrong in that because I'd rather go in feeling like I have a relatively strong opinion. A hundred percent with that. Another thing that I wanted to talk about was after the races. I know obviously the race replays take time. Do you usually make a day, like whether it be a Monday or a Tuesday on a dark day or a Wednesday for that matter, to just figure out like, okay, I'll do my race replay research here and I'll do my other side note stuff here? Or is it kind of throughout the week you're doing everything? It's throughout the week. Um, like I said, one of the benefits of being at the track is that I'm there. It's also maybe a bit of a negative because there's just never really a – a slowdown point, especially during, like, for instance, the Gulfstream Championship meet, because as soon as I finish one card, I'm on to the next, and I'm working on feature videos and getting interviews and speaking to connections and everything all in the middle of that. So, um, but what I do do is if there are certain things I notice during the day, whether it's track condition or it started raining really hard before this one particular race and maybe the track condition hadn't been updated yet at that point or something, or it was really windy and I noticed a lot of horses reacting to that or one horse was acting up in the gate. You know, those are things that are not going to show up on on um, on the chart afterwards and things that you wouldn't even see in a race replay either. So I try to be careful and take notes of those as well, and I think that those can be helpful. Um, but I certainly do, as that horse will come back, I will be really, um, really specific about getting a chance to watch replays. Well, Acacia, I'm super excited to dive into these three races that you've actually chosen out for us this week. What do you say we get started with race number seven at Gulfstream Park? It was an allowance going five furlongs on the turf. What were your thoughts before the race went off? So this was the start of the Rainbow Six. It was mandatory payout day. So you knew that there was going to be a bit more time before this race than <laughs> uh, some of the others. And um, it actually came up a very, very competitive race. And there were a few kind of wild card horses as well. And on paper, it actually, to me, had looked initially like there might be quite a fast pace. So um, coming into this, that was kind of what I was intrigued by again trying to visualize how the race was going to play out now as we've often seen in races at Gulfstream that the track does tend to be a bit kinder to early speed types for sure there were a few horses that were intriguing to me as they were second off a layoff and that was the nine envied and the five foolish humor there was one horse that I thought was going to take money, but I was a strong bet against, and that was the 10 Compensate, who I didn't use in my top four at all. And then there was another horse that I thought had a big chance, but was really going to be overlooked in the wagering, and that was the three Fast Scene. So those were kind of the horses I was narrowing in on, and then... Um, kind of the outliers to me were the two aficionado, a French friend making her first U.S. start, and the one American tap who was trying the turf for the first time. So at first glance, that's kind of where I was standing. Now, obviously, Compensate ended up going off as the favorite. What didn't you like about this horse? 
I just didn't completely trust her. Watching back in the Melody of Colors, she came out of the same race as Foolish Humor. And to me, the, the biggest question about this particular race was, is it going to be a case of Foolish Humor needed that race off the layoff? Visually, to me, in the race, she looked like she had gotten a bit tired, whereas Compensate looked like she had a perfect trip and still wasn't able to win. So coming out of it, I did prefer Foolish Humor. However, there was still a question about her as to, was she just a really precocious Wesley Ward two-year-old? Is she going to take that next step forward, second off the layoff as a three-year-old? However, like I said, Compensate, to me, had a perfect trip still couldn't get the job done. I thought her dirt races were largely better. Um, and then just seeing her physically in the last couple of races, knowing what she, what to expect from her. She's a, a really solid, almost stockier kind of built type of horse, truly looks like a sprinter. But I felt that there were a couple of others in here that were going to be a bit tougher competition for her than what she had been facing. For me, it was almost the exact opposite. Foolish humor to me. I don't like to have a horse that hasn't really improved since the debut. I know Wesley loves to take these horses over to Ascot, and sometimes I feel like when they come back, they're just not the same. I actually ended up on the number three fast scene. I mm -hmm. tossed the last against Kamari. We know what kind of horse that is. Uh, she won first time out, so off of layoffs. If they can win first time out or show at least you know a nice solid second off a of layoff, I tend to not give them a negative if the trainer stats negative and especially with it being under the same trainer winning off first time out I thought that this won't have a nice shot the top choice for me was the number two aficionado I love taking imports with these type of races where it doesn't seem like if I don't like a favorite or I don't like a short priced horse these guys seem to, seem to forget forgetting on the wagering board was there anything I don't know if you ever look at the races overseas or anything First mm -hmm. time Patrick B. and Cone, North America. Did it seem like a positive to you? It did. And one of the things that I liked about her European races was that she had shown quite a bit of speed. And that's something that you don't often see with um, some European horses coming to the U.S. That they're not usually as fast out of the gate. And that's that's just a kind of broad statement. Obviously, it doesn't apply to all of them. Um, but I did think that she had been training really well over the turf course at Palmetto's, which is encouraging. The Palmetto's a training center really close by. Having the opportunity to train on the turf course is a really big benefit because it's obviously going to be a much different type of co uh, course on the grass here in Florida versus what she was facing in France. So... I think that that was a, a positive. However, this was a case of, again, one that I had been intrigued by, but when I saw her in the flesh, I just kind of said, oh, wow. She, um, I don't know if she was even 15 hands. She was very, very, very small. Mm -hmm. um, I had actually joked with Joe Bravo that he didn't even need a leg up. He kind of could have just jumped on her. Yes. Uh, it was, <laughs> she She surprised me. In that, and that's not a bad thing. There have been some really... Tiny Phillies, uh, Uni comes to mind, who won the Breeders' Cup. She's she's very, very small and not kind of one that would stand out to you. So it's not a bad thing, but it, it just had kind of taken me aback because you had some, in this race, really impressive-looking Phillies who were coming in and looking really strong. Obviously, this was the first leg, like you said, of the mandatory payout. What did you do from a wagering standpoint in this race? 
I went four deep in here, so I, I made it out of the first leg because Foolish Humor was a little bit further down. I admit I had Envied as my top pick, but I, I did use Foolish Humor. Um, I did use Fast Scene, so I had both of those that I was really intrigued by. Um, coming into it, I had tossed Compensate on paper, and seeing them in the flesh that afternoon, I was happy about that. I did use Aficionado. Um, in the first leg of the pick six, but had I been able to see all of them first, I would not have used her and I would have used American Tap instead. For me, for everyone who knows, uh, being the founder of the Daily Gallup website, we do a, we've do we been doing a season. We got I'm actually in the playoffs right now. It was this, this is the first week of the playoffs, and I ended up using Aficionado as my top pick. Let's hear PIO on the call here in race seven and see if Acacia can improve on her pick six and if I can get it done with Aficionado right now. And they're off. From the far outside, compensate away quickly in the center. Here's Foolish Humor moving up. Happy Loud and away with speed. Out of there, fourth goes Silver Tunes. An early fifth is Envied while trying to get over. Then it's Fast Scene. Beaten for speed, Aficionado, American Tap, and Glory Dia. Inside half a mile to the finish, Foolish Humor leads three parts of a length. Compensate on the outside is their second. Silver Tunes is together with Envied. Envied is three wide, only a length and a half off the in-battle duo. On from fifth, that's Fast Scene, dropping back Happy Loudon. Aficionado is between horses. Glory D is out wide, and American Tap is at the back as they run to the top of the stretch. 21-1 and one for the opening quarter. Here's Envied, three wide on the outside of Foolish Humor with Compensate between. Off the turn in the stretch drive, Foolish Humor still has the lead with a eighth of a mile to get envied tried to go with her but foolish humor had a kick and foolish humor kicks again to lead by two fast scene is late on the scene fast scene tries to get foolish humor here's fast scene at foolish humor photo finish and foolish humor gets it done paying 920 with a 74 buyer that might be songbird versus beholder style when it looks like when you come to that photo that was a tight photo. It seems like everybody on Twitter had the three in that race. So everybody seemed upset about it. Um, I think, though, and like I said, I, I had both of them. So I was hoping for the higher price of the two, whatever that was going to be. But uh, I will say it's been uh, the last couple of weeks at Gulfstream. Wesley Ward has had some short price two-year-olds that haven't really delivered. And I think a lot of people have been kind of quick to jump off the bandwagon. So don't forget about him. You can still win races for sure. It's it's funny. People always have that like short-term memory where they, they forget that Wesley has won with like all the two-year-old races. It seems like he's now ice cold on the board. He's going off at like three to one, which to me sounds crazy but he has been losing recently with those types. Now, for me, obviously, I didn't like Foolish Humor, but I liked Fast Scene. Do you ever have those races where like, you're really right about one horse but really wrong about the other? And how do you kind of look through after the race? Like, Do you try to figure out what you did wrong or what you did right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this was a race that I, I got lucky, but kind of going into it right before the start, even though I didn't like her, I was questioning myself about not using Compensate. And I was thinking, I was like, this is a really an opportunity where I could get burned mm -hmm. and that I'm four deep and I don't have the favorite. And uh, I was a little bit worried about that, but uh, I could certainly... I certainly uh, relate to that. There have been so many opportunities where you feel like you're really right on. It actually happened in the last race of the day. I had the one horse um, 
the Robert with Joel Rosario mm-hmm. up in the nightcap on Saturday and got beat by a 25 to one shot who actually looking back kind of made sense, but it, it was the type of horse that I've just probably would have overlooked. So I think that those are opportunities where you get a chance to kind of question yourself and say, okay, can I just be a little bit more open-minded about the type of horse that I typically would not pick? It's funny you bring up that last race, not to be on a tangent, but me and G1 <laughs> handicapping Marshall Sterling, we did a live stream for the late pick four, and he it was uh, three deep in the pick four in that last race and had the one, the two, and the three. And we went oh. back We went back last night and looked at the four. And the trainer stats, I think he was something like 24, 25, like a very high percentage, just like with just basic dirt and claiming races. And then when we saw that he'd been using a lot of the bug riders, we just like – what a mistake to let a horse like that, who had a decent 78 buyer last time out, beat us at a huge price. Yeah, it's true. Those those are the those are the tough ones for sure. <laughs> when you go back and you're like, oh, I am just the biggest idiot possible. <laughs> so now out of this race, obviously F- Foolish Humor and Fast Scene were a nose apart. Obviously not using Compensate was good on your side. What do you do with a horse like Aficionado now? Because usually once they don't win first time North America, I tend to shy away until I see them win, and I try and beat them in all starts before that happens. Oh, that's interesting. I actually take a little bit of a different approach. I'm I'm a bit more forgiving in their first start in North America just because it is a little bit different. I think different trainers have um, different kind of stats for those mm-hmm. uh, shippers from Europe, for sure. There are some that just are red hot with getting horses from Europe and really right away off the bat getting them to win. And I think that's where you really kind of weigh it a bit more. Um, with Patrick Biancone, though, just looking at this horse in particular, I, I I would definitely, if she's in the right spot next time, be a little bit softer on aficionado. Again, now just kind of knowing what to expect from her, I think that'll be a help as well. She's clearly fast. Um, maybe she just needs uh, needed that chance to race here in Europe. Maybe it's going to be a different class next time out. I wouldn't imagine we'd see more distance, but um, I I would not be opposed to looking giving her a good look next time out. Obviously, with you being the race replay person of the two of us, was there any horse that you saw with a bad trip that you would be looking to bet back next time out? I think um, I actually think the number one American tap would be one that I wouldn't shy away from on turf. I don't think that she had a a bad trip in this race, but I, I don't think that she was necessarily the most comfortable. She was one that had actually kind of caught my eye before the race, and it just looked to me like now having the seasoning she hadn't raced since the end of october so having the seasoning with a race now in 2020 and a race on the turf as well she would be one that i would actually look at moving forward she she was really kind of hard assed on the track warming up with the pony i think she has the ability to show some speed and uh, and i'd be curious to look at her next time out let's move on to race number nine it was a seventy-five thousand sunshine forever going one one sixteenth miles on the turf. I mean, for being a listed stake race, this race had a lot of good graded competition in it. <laughs> yeah, when uh, when the field was full and first drawn, it really almost felt like a grade two versus mm-hmm. a, a small little listed stake. Uh, admission office, the morning line favorite to me, great graded stake horse. I thought this might be too short for him. The number nine, Social Paranoia, who's very consistent. I thought he had a bit of a setup in the last, but he does like Gulfstream. I ended up on the number six, Halliday. 
I couldn't believe, I think his first flash, he was under two to one. And I just could not believe that I was not going to get at least five to two on this horse, which kind of made me shy away a little bit from just betting actual money and just having him in the contest. Where'd you end up in here, Acacia? So I actually had initially had social paranoia on before War of Will and Regally Irish were when they were still in the race because I felt like they were going to give him a bit of a setup as well. I think Halliday is a very talented horse, but I could not envision a scenario where War of Will would not be forwardly placed behind him. And I think Regally Irish, his kind of best bet was to try to go and I still wasn't entirely sure of what we were going to get from El Tormenta who was really keen last time out and Mm -hmm. he helped set it up for social paranoia the blinkers came off um, in this race so I felt like that might help him to settle a bit more but he has in the past shown some speed so I had felt like it wouldn't be the easiest time with Halliday. And then after the scratches, I went back and reevaluated it and felt like Halliday was going to be alone on the front end, which is what ended up happening. So I ended up landing on Halliday on top over social paranoia. And, um, and I also was using admission office underneath, but I too felt it was a bit too short for him. The one horse that I thought was going to be a bit of a price was the number four aquaphobia Maker off the claim with an old turf horse. I feel like I've read that book 10,000 times already in my few years of doing it. And he got a nice, what I thought was a nice rider upgrade, obviously, from Brian Hernandez to Irad Ortiz. Thoughts on the number four, Aquaphobia? You know, he was one that I just wasn't quite sure. I thought his last couple of races were good. But looking how he ran at the fairgrounds last time, I, I had a couple of doubts, I'll be honest, as to if he was quite up to this level of some of the other horses in here. But he proved me dead wrong. He ran a huge race this afternoon, too. What did you end up doing from a wagering standpoint? Obviously, I don't know if you were if you were now dead in the pick six or if you had survived the last leg. Where did you end up going here from a wagering standpoint? I, I didn't go deep enough in the second leg. That was the main miss. It was mm-hmm. my third horse in that price that I should have just used one more. But um, what I did actually in here was just use the two Pletcher horses. I felt like those were the ones who... Really, and I, I actually almost considered singling Halliday, um, which in, in retrospect probably would have been a, a nice idea in order to spread in a couple of the other races. But I uh, felt like Halliday was going to have the perfect trip. And though I still feel a mile, mile and 16th is a, a touch short for social paranoia without the perfect trip, I feel like he's got a lot of talent. For me in my contest, it was just the number six holiday. I was looking to make a nice win wager through the through the paramutual pool, but at six to five, I didn't want to <laughs> get too greedy on that. Let's hear Pete Aiello with the call here right now. And they're off in the sunshine forever. It was a good start between horses for Aquaphobia, who's one of the first to get underway, quickly overhauled by Halliday, and Halliday now assumes the front. Down inside goes El Tormenta to race from second, and away in third is Aquaphobia. On the far outside, admission office looking to get over, and Sand Dancer is nearest the inside. Mid-flight is Social Paranoia, a length and a half better than Highland Sky, third last. Cullum Road is second last, and the early trailer, the trailer is Hawkish. 
Around the first turn they go, and Halliday is clear. He leads a length and a quarter. Racing second is El Tormenta up on the outside. It's admission office, a close third. Sandancer is together with Aquaphobia. They're racing about four lengths off the lead. Two in front of Social Paranoia, who's settled nicely. He's about six lengths off the go. Gap of two to Highland Sky, then Hawkish, who improves outside of Cullum Road. And the opening quarter complete in 23-3. and three. The half mile complete in 47 seconds flat. Inside half a mile from the finish, it's the favorite Halliday, who has the lead by a length. El Tormenta is there second on the outside admission off is still third. Aquaphobia is now a clear fourth from Sand Dancer, then Social Paranoia. Hawkish is three wide. Backpedaling is Highland Sky and Cullum Road nearest the inside as they round the far turn. Halliday in a bid to make the distance here. He leads by a length and a half up on the outside. Aquaphobia now charges into second around El Tormenta. Social Paranoia cuts the corner. Admission office is wide with an eighth of a mile still to go. Halliday leads by a length and a half. Aquaphobia taking his shot. Social Paranoia is charging from third. Less than an eighth to go. It's Halliday still finding. Aquaphobia still trying, but Halliday goes gate to wire and wins the sunshine forever. And the number six Halliday gets it done paying a small 460, but the buyer was very nice 102. Thoughts on the race, Acacia? I love the way he finished it up. I think it was pretty clear that he was going to get a nice setup and that he could be comfortable on the front end. But when he had a little bit of an attack from Aquaphobia and he kind of dug back in and rallied really nicely in the stretch, he wasn't just coasting down to the wire. I thought he finished up really, really well. And that was a, a very intriguing performance for me and an encouraging one as well to, to kind of just uh, cement the thought that he's really moving in an upward trajectory. It seemed like the betting public got it really right in this race. Obviously, the top four finished top four in that order. When you see a group of horses that were, it just seems like the board, there's not really much value. What do you do from a wagering standpoint? Is it more of a pass the race, or you're just if you're alive in horizontals, just hope you're right? Well, I think, like I said, this this could potentially be a good single race, especially with the scratches. Mm-hmm. I had I had toyed with it as well, just singling Halliday. And I kind of joke with it as being your free bingo square. Mm-hmm. So if you're playing multi-race wagers, whatever it may be, you can single in a race like this and then spread in a couple of others and find your value there. That's a tactic I like to use. But my other tactic is if you do like the favorite, trying to find a nice price horse underneath. And I had been dead wrong about it, but I thought potentially Highland Sky could be one of those. Um, and he just, I, I just think some of his best races we've seen already at this point. So uh, that was a bit disappointing, but I was hoping he might be a nice price I could potentially use underneath with some of the shorter priced ones. One of my favorite things to do is I love the handicap in general, but after the races, I can't wait for the buyer team to come out on formulator to see what the chart came up with in this race. Aquaphobia was the only one to improve his buyer from a 95 to 100. Everyone else was either holiday was the same at a one Oh two social paranoia dropped three points and admission office dropped, you know, about 10. So mm-hmm. when, when I see a horse like that, I would instantly mark, like if I thought this horse was going to improve, and he does improve, to me, it's like, I think I have a good beat on that horse. Do you ever do something like that, whether it's looking at the pace, like, oh, I hit that pace perfectly when I died, when I was doing it in the form ahead of the race? Well, absolutely, and I think that's a nice tie-in to one of the other races we'll talk about today, so I won't go too deep into that horse, but that was actually an angle I had used for, for the 11th race on Saturday. Um, I really think that 
especially when you see a horse that's very precocious or maybe one that you don't completely trust and then all of a sudden either gives a very impressive performance or a disappointing performance. The best tactic is to try to figure out, was that a fluke? Was there some sort of excuse? Or was that a, a real signifier that the horse is actually moving in that upwards or downwards direction? And for me, I, listen, I love Andy Byer as much as the next person, but everyone always talks about how picking winners is the number one handicapping book ever. For me, the key is not picking a winner and getting it down to one horse. It's getting your group of contenders and then allowing the board to dictate kind of where you go. If you have a bunch of underlays for your picks, you have to pass the race. And I think it was in the Mike Maloney book from uh, PT PTF. It says if you're not passing winners, you're not passing enough races. I think that's a great idea and a great concept. I think this would be a perfect race to to use that as an opportunity because if Halliday was any sort of little bit of a price, I feel like it would be the best day ever. But because he took so much money... That was one of the ones that, like I said, I feel like that's an opportunity where you either you just use him as your your anchor in those multi-race wagers, and sometimes you don't have a chance to really get to see the board um, when you're playing some of those bigger multi-race wagers. But I I would have taken the uh, uh, taken the opportunity to kind of not play this race and just spectate. <laughs> Obviously, this race we talked about earlier was felt like a grade two. You said you go, when you start the card, you go through and you look at class drops and such like this. Will you mark, I don't know if you use formulary or whatever you use, will you kind of write down the note of was more like a grade three, grade two type race than the listed stake that it was on the day? Absolutely. And I think you can gauge that just based off of the competition that these horses have been facing. Mm -hmm. So that's a big note for the stake moving forward, that it, it's not just one of these little uh, summer overnight stakes that you might see. This is a, a really, really high-quality one. And the last couple of weeks at Gulfstream, and, and obviously with everything going on with coronavirus, um, people have kind of had to reroute their plans a little bit more. So it is nice that at least they have some sort of stakes opportunity for some of these really top class horses that are still stabled in Florida. What do you say? We move on to our last race. It was race 11. It was a state bred 16 K optional going six furlongs on the dirt. I'll fight. Dempsey was the slight favorite. I thought he was a bad favorite. I usually don't like horses that drop from Pletcher's barn like that. I ended up on the number three, tap it to win. I, I love the number three back. I like that he finally gets back on the dirt. The number five, our Mercedes boy. The trainer had a great trainer stat, being six for 13, second off the layoff. And my price play was the number 11, Whiskey Sunset. One of Maiden Special Weight, and I love seeing those red fractions from time form. Yeah, this was an interesting race, and, and I was with you. I was very much against All Fight Dempsey in here as well, and this was kind of the angle I was alluding to a few minutes ago that he won so impressively first time out, and I, I felt like many people um, had looked at that last race and thought that there could have been some excuses coming out of it, and I, I didn't feel that way at all. I felt like that was the race I was really going to go off of. Um, in his debut, again, watching replays I think was really important. Um, John Velasquez in his debut just never had to move his hands and it looked coming out of that race with the second place finisher candy machine coming back to win nicely like he was going to be a pretty a pretty nice horse but what I didn't like about his second race not just that he 
disappointed and didn't win at one to two. And I know that an argument had been made that maybe the seven furlongs was a touch too far for him. It might have been a little bit too far, but I don't think that was any sort of excuse. He did have a pretty hot pace in that race, but the winner, Sonneman, was the only one that made up any ground in the stretch. It just seemed like Allfight Dempsey was kind of flailing a little bit and, and holding on, but he wasn't really running anywhere in the stretch. And it wasn't like the pace had completely melted down to set up for closers to come from off of it. Sonneman was the only one that really seemed to be making up ground that day. Um, and I, I just did not trust Allfight Dempsey at a short price. Now, when we look at these state-bred races, are you looking for more of the open levels of competition dropping in, or is there a nice little secret, like, you know, class angle that you have for these types of races? Well, horses that have faced open competition um, absolutely get a little bit of an extra nod for sure because they've they've had to run against a larger pool of horses, theoretically. So sometimes just getting back into state-bred competition um, might be a nice little opportunity for that horse to kind of find his friends, if you will. Um, I think that's a great angle to look at with Tap It to Win, who I had liked on top as well, not just getting back to sprinting for this one, but he faced open maiden special weight competition at Saratoga and won so impressively against a bias that day as well. And then went into grade one company and a stakes company at Churchill. And now he's into a state bred Mm -hmm. allowance optional claiming just based strictly on class. To me, he was the one to beat. And this is the exact opposite of the last race. When I saw him at five to one, I was like, holy smokes, (laughs) Batman, like what's going on here? And I'll fight Dempsey. This is this is the kind of thing. It's not that people bet connections because I've been with people who trust me. All they play is Johnny V and Pletcher at Saratoga when I'm with the bet squad. When you see the horse go from an 84 and then regress for top conditioners second time out, usually second time out you want to see the horse, even though it was against winners, improve and show that they're ready for the you know allowance level or the stake level competition. I just to me. It was just one that you just want to try to avoid. And these horses will beat you from time to time, but you need to kind of remember to beat these. Whiskey Sunrise for me, and what ended up being a very hot pace up front, it just, I love horses that can be in hot paces and still end up uh, coming out on top. And this one to win by four and a half with hot paces, I thought was very impressive. I was a bit tough on Whiskey Sunrise in here, I admit. And I think this is a good example of um, looking back at at a race and looking at a horse that you knew you should have used and Mm -hmm. didn't and I got lucky in that tap it to win still got the win that day (laughs) um, I I was nervous there for a minute with Whiskey Sunrise and one thing I also wanted to point out with Whiskey Sunrise I'm glad you brought him up is that this is a great chance to look at kind of streaks or when it, when a barn gets on gets on a like a good groove going and that's what we've seen lately from Mike Yates he had last year um, and particularly you'll see it more in the summer as well but he had a really solid championship meet a smaller trainer it's not you know going to be to the notoriety of a Todd Pletcher but he has had a lot of luck with the stallion Cajun Breeze he had some really precocious two-year-olds he had success in the Florida Sire Stakes last year and lately I mean even now looking just at 29% for the spring meet he's He's been on such a good groove lately, not just with precocious two-year-olds, but seeing some older horses, including Whiskey Sunrise, who came back off of a year layoff to win like he did last time out. 
another great handicapping author, Mark Kramer, he talks about hot connections and trainers specifically. We know Chad and, and Pletcher are going to win these, you know, 30%, 25% of the time. He said, try and find horses or trainers that will have two winners a week paying five to one or better. That'll kind of tell you that that certain barn is either sending out really live mounts at good prices or at least that they're heating up and they're going to get ready to go on a roll. Uh, one other horse for me that I was interested in a little bit was another maiden horse jumping up. That was September teen. Another horse on the lead, which made me think it was going to be a hot pace, but coming from maiden claiming, not maiden special weight. Now that had been the question with this one, but I will say looking back at that race, and I he was a heavy favorite, and I think rightfully so. I liked him that day. He was dropping in class to maiden special weight to maiden claiming, and he had a huge jockey change to Luis Saez last time out. So there was, I, I thought, a significant reason as to why we saw such a big improvement from him last time. It wasn't a huge jump as far as his figure. He'd been running solid figures in special weight company, but getting a chance to uh, kind of say, okay, it's go time back at a level where he had run before he had been exposed already for several races and made in claiming company. It wasn't his first time for a tag. And I didn't know particularly as a win prospect in here, but I thought for sure he was a good um, use underneath, especially having Rosario up. Let's talk wagering. Acacia, obviously out of the pick six, did you start the pick four? a couple of races ago or was it just kind of doing vertical at this point? At this point it was vertical. I had really liked tap it to win and, and I like you was very excited to see him have a bit of a price. So uh, I did a bit of a win on him and I had actually done a, a little um, late pick three because I felt like it was pretty easy to have battle of Blenheim in the prior race. And I was really kind of keying on tap it to win and I was hoping I'd get a price in the last. So um, this was kind of a, an exciting little extra oomph for me in seeing that tap it to win might actually go off as a bit of a price for me i was all over tap it to win and just so folks know i was completely against battle of blenheim last race uh oh. marshall was killing me about that for the last two days let's see piello with the race call right now and they're off check the last at the start was chinamadito the others line up for the early lead with all fight Dempsey emerging through between horses to take an advantage from our Mercedes boy who moves with him while second. Whiskey Sunrise from the top shelf claims third in front of Tappet to win who's an early fourth. Then Cryogenic and Haunted by the Music, September 10 nearest the inside. More than striking is second last and better than seven lengths behind and three clear of the trailer, Chinamadito. 22-1 and one for the opening quarter as they round the far turn. I'll fight Dempsey. Has the lead by a neck. Our Mercedes boy keeps the heat on second. Three wide whiskey sunrise third. Tap it to win. We'll have an opportunity to rally if good enough. He's looking to get to the outside. He's now fourth. Well clear of September 10, who's now fifth. And cryogenic dropping back. Haunted by the music with a quarter of a mile left to go. I'll fight Dempsey is giving way. Taking over the lead is whiskey sunrise. Tap it to win. Shown open racetrack and he's finishing up nicely with an eighth of a mile to go. Here comes Tappet to win. Up on the outside to take the lead from Whiskey Sunrise, who's back to second. They're well clear of the others, but as they come home for the wire, Tappet to win. Indeed. And Tappet to win wins paying twelve forty with a nice 88 buyer. What were your thoughts on this race, Acacia? I thought he ran a great race, and I, I said, and I had actually tweeted out afterwards that I think this is a really nice stepping stone race for him. I, I don't think he's a two-turn type of horse, but 
seven furlongs, maybe out to a mile. But I think more than anything, he was happy to get to go a shorter distance. And I loved that they had just done right by the horse, given him time and brought him back when he was really ready to roll. So I don't know what 2020 holds in store as far as racing schedule, but um, I definitely feel like we'll see this horse back into graded company. And, and I've often said this, when you have a two-year-old that's very good, it's really hard to not just take a try at some of those mm -hmm. two-turn top-level races. But I think now as a three-year-old, they've kind of found what he really wants to do. I think the angle for if we're going to, like we talked about with the handicapping book to look for here was the trainer that tries the two-year-old path and then just really kind of just takes a, a long step back and is like, okay, let's give him that confidence boost and then we can reassess after the race. Yeah, I agree. And I think Mark Cassie's definitely a, a good example of that with some horses that maybe you, you give them a shot on that trail. And then after that, you again, kind of take a step back and say, okay, where do they actually need to be placed? Cause you know, Mark Cassie likes to run them. And so seeing uh, some time given to this one and just brought back in the right spot, I think he's definitely on a good trajectory with this horse. Whiskey sunrise survives the pace duel again. Obviously tap it to win was right behind the three of those horses and just got the absolute perfect trip. He absolutely did, and I, I would really say Risky Sunrise uh, got just another kind of check mark next to him. He ran another big race and really has done nothing wrong in his three starts so far, so he's definitely going to be a really useful one for the barn. Let's talk about the favorite I'll fight. Dempsey, not too good, goes from a 77 down to a 56. Is this just another excuse with the pace set up, or is it a horse that just needs class relief? No, I think he needs class relief, honestly. And, and then Todd Butcher is not one that's afraid to do that. You know, you'll see, especially this time of year, horses taking some drops in class and things like that. And, and I'm sure it's disappointing. And he might, I don't know, he might have some underlying issues um, that need to be resolved. I, I, I don't know anything about uh, what goes on behind the scenes, but these are animals at the end of the day. And I think it's very easy to forget that. And so maybe there are some things that, that can be done to help uh, help him kind of get back on track to what we saw in his debut. But I thought he kind of just folded as I had kind of expected him to. And um, I think moving forward, I'd be a little bit leery about him until we see him take another step forward. Anybody that surprised you from a trip note that you would look forward to betting back next time? Oh, that's interesting. The biggest one for me was Whiskey Sunrise that we had already talked mm -hmm. about. I thought that his his stamina and his ability, the way that he's been able to improve second off the bench was really, really strong. Um, the rest of the field I thought was kind of okay, but I thought the top couple finishers were the big standouts in here. And, and I wasn't, to be honest, I wasn't really looking much at the rest of the field. When you see a race like this where it's just the top two and the rest are kind of also rans, this is a race where you'll kind of downgrade going forward and just look to use the top two for the most part? Yes, um, I think that it's especially if you see maybe some horses come out of here and take a drop in class and seeing the company that they face with the top two being very strong. I think that that's something that uh, could be useful moving forward, but I wouldn't necessarily look at a horse coming back at a comparable level in an equally as deep race and say, oh, we ran against these top two that were so good. He could have a shot in here. I, I think he's the kind of the rest of the field in here is kind of a need to prove yourself type of thing next time out, or maybe look for a few kind of changes. 
Well, that's all the time we have for today. Acacia, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I've been looking forward to having you as a guest. We will have to have you on again shortly. Where can people find you on social media? Uh, sure. I'm Acacia underscore Courtney on pretty much everything. So give a follow, um, tweet some ideas, ask questions if you have them. I'll always respond if I can. And um, a big thank you for having me on. It was fun kind of talking through the races. Absolutely. Thanks again, Acacia. Thank you. Thanks to all of our great fans for listening to this show and my special guest, Acacia Courtney. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. In The Money Media's president is Peter Thomas Fornatel. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin, and our In The Money Media business manager is Drew Coatney. I'm Spencer Luganbuehl, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.